From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection between religion, social justice, and public life. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. And today, Religion for Life is a show for the birds. Emily Dickinson, the famous poet, once said that there was only one commandment of Jesus that she could keep consistently, and that was to consider the birds. And that is what we are going to do today. We are going to consider the birds with the assistance of my guest, Reverend Debbie Blue. Debbie Blue is one of the founding pastors of House of Mercy, a church in St. Paul, Minnesota, once named the best church for non-churchgoers and known nationwide as one of the first and most enduring emergent congregations. The author of Sensual Orthodoxy, Debbie Blue's sermon podcasts are listened to by subscribers around the world, and her essays, sermons, blogs, and reflections on Scripture have appeared in a wide variety of publications. Uh, the invitation to worship uh, to House of Mercy on her website reads, Sundays at 5 p.m., you should come, it's not that bad. I, 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 I kind of love that, an understated uh, advertising there. Uh, she's with me via Skype uh, from, I assume your home is in St. Paul, uh, to discuss her latest book, Consider the Birds, a Provocative Guide to Birds of the Bible. Welcome, Debbie, to Religion for Life. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So how, how did you come to write a book about birds? Well, as a minister you know, you have to preach on text over and over again, and I'm always trying to find an interesting way into the text. And I thought that maybe taking the birds, even though they're usually minor characters, they're pretty awesome. I thought taking them seriously might lead to some interesting places, and I really think it did. And the birds really do, when you start looking, have a really prominent place in the Judeo-Christian founding narratives. And they also have a prominent place in almost um, every culture's founding narratives. Um, as long as humans have been alive, as long as humans have been breathing, they've been investing birds with meaning. Um, they've never just been bones and feathers. They represent hope or they're omens of death or they're messengers of the gods um, or they're their gods. Um, and uh, they, so they've always, in mythology, in our lives across time and culture, um, they've meant a lot and they have fascinated people. And there's so many people that watch birds and research them and tell stories about them. And, and it seems like in that process, we learn about ourselves, we learn about the creator and we learn about creation. And so, yeah, they're mm -hmm. really all over the Bible. Yeah. And so as you were writing then about birds of the Bible, that gave you a window into the text of scripture itself. Exactly. Yeah. You've done some birding, so uh, you're, you've actually done some observations of real birds. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> For a while, actually, when I was first falling in love with my husband, we birded, we were just crazy birders. He taught me how to identify warblers, and um, part of our courtship was going to see the cranes do their mating dances in Nebraska, and we started keeping a life list, and I was sure that we would always keep this up, but we had kids, I started a church, we stopped doing that as much. You know, the binoculars are always hanging from a peg in our house, but we just, I wasn't getting them out as much. But when this idea came, 
Well, actually, I started preaching on some texts where birds appeared and I got inordinately interested in them and their mythologies and what they meant across cultures. And I thought this would be a great way, write this book, different way into the text, get me look, watching birds again. And I think that, I think the sort of consciousness necessary for birding is is a very contemplative space and it's much like faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes and it goes, it requires waiting, you have to use your body and your mind, attention is crucial to it. And so like any sort of devotional practice, um, it creates this sort of attentive space that I knew I desperately needed in my lives and I think other people desperately need in their lives. So I thought, okay, different way into the text, get me watching birds again. And then as well, um, I'm very concerned about the life of our planet and I thought it's sort of a plea for birds. You know, we're losing 10 species a year of birds. And if it wasn't for climate change or habitat destruction, we would probably, the rate of extinction is expected to be only one species per century. So 10 species a year. So I hope considering the birds would motivate, uh, motivate me, motivate us to press for a more responsible human behavior. And like Emily Dickinson says, Hope is the thing with feathers. And you'd think that if that's true, we should be passionate about keeping it alive. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And your book, um, you take, you find 10 birds to talk about uh, that you found in the scriptures and in the, and in the larger uh, Christian tradition as well. And so, but you speak about them mythologically, but you also speak about uh, the real birds. For example, uh, you talk about the environment. You mentioned a pelican. I, I found that to be a very interesting thing. I didn't really realize that the pelican had a medieval mythology associated with it, uh, with, with Christ and, and all of that. And I love the turn you make uh, about the how to understand the pelican in light of, for example, the Gulf oil spill. Can you tell us a little bit about that chapter and the bird, the pelican? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, The pelican isn't really in the Bible, but it has a great place in Christian iconography. And that's probably from the, well, it's almost certainly from the medieval bestiaries, which really sort of fascinated me. Um, Because there's been this tendency in the Christian tradition to strictly divide man from beast and the natural world from supernatural truths but in these medieval bestiaries they take this totally different tact and that's based at least in part on the biblical verses like job 12 7 that says ask the beasts and they will tell you ask the birds of the air and they will teach you and so the writers and the illustrators of these bestiaries um, believe that every animal every rock every plant even everything was invested with the breath of God. And so if you observed it, you would learn something more. So they took it very seriously. And um, the pelican appears in these. But the pelican, I mean, they didn't really have much. There weren't many means of accurate scientific, you know, observation. And so the pelican got this reputation of being very Christ-like because they thought that the pelican pecked its breasts to feed its own young with its own blood. Um, so it became the figure of Christ. And you can actually find the pelican all over in 
you know, that's it's in it's in iconography. Um, but I but that led me think led me to think a lot about sacrifice and um the idea that we have to give something up. It's almost like in the church the idea of sacrifice sacrifice has been someone has to pay. And it seems like that's very different than the idea of grace, which is ever abounding and it's not about buying and selling. So um, I started thinking about what does the pelican symbolize now? It symbolized more like um, the problems with sacrifice. Like we think, oh, you have to sacrifice the environment to get oil. You have to sacrifice birds so that we can drive cars. And there's something about that, th that sort of exchange method that doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of people that are questioning sort of the old sacrificial theories and somehow the pelican just led me into that so now i thought the pelican instead of being this symbol of jesus sacrificing his blood for us it's more like the symbol of how we have sacrificed the environment um, so that we can maintain our dependence on fossil fuels of course there are there are wrong medieval people when thinking about pelicans actually poking their breasts and giving blood to their offspring. That, that isn't what pelicans do. So they were wrong, as you mentioned in the book, both biologically and theologically in regards, yeah, to, right. regards to making the pelican think of that sacrifice as such a great plan. Exactly. Yes. Debbie Blue is my guest if you're just joining us on Religion for Life. She is the pastor of House of Mercy Congregation in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the author of Consider the Birds, a Provocative Guide to Birds of the Bible. And as I was reading this wonderful book of the different um, ways in which you approach some of the birds and the stories of the Bible, you take them and then take them into a different angle of contemporary relevance. Uh, one was the sparrow and how that led you into a conversation on immigration. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, sparrows among birders are not a favorite creature. Um, they were introduced into um, North America from England, so they're not native. And so they get a really terrible reputation as sort of the non-native invasive species they kill bluebirds, they take bluebird houses. Um, a lot of birders even kill them. I mean, I, my neighbors, this is one place where my, the farm where I live comes into the story very much. I, I have neighbors who are super birders. My, my friend Diane studied ornithology. And when we first moved to the farm, um, we put up bluebird houses because the bluebirds were, um, they were disappearing. But instead of bluebirds inhabiting the houses, the sparrows came in. So Brett and Diane, my neighbors, killed them. I never even asked quite how they killed them. But, uh -huh. but, and a lot of birders are very um, sort of intent on that, almost like if you're a good birder, if you really love birds, you'll kill sparrows. But so I started thinking about the verse where, you know, God says, not not one single sparrow is forgotten about forgotten by God, and something that seemed to take on this even more sort of intense and beautiful meaning. This this hated species um, is is loved, and it, it got me talking about immigration because actually when um, this they called it the Sparrow Wars, and this was happening 
I can't remember now, but I think the late 18th century, um, people were realizing that these invas the, the sparrows that they had imported were invading. And so much of the rhetoric around the sparrow um, was this very same rhetoric around immigrants, um, mm-hmm. the Irish and the, um, you know, the people thought these were all these anarchists that were coming in and they, they lived horribly and they lived in the ghetto and they were all the same rhetoric around immigrants to America was used around sparrows. Um, so that was interesting too. And it's like, well, maybe there's something in us, like we, we hate something, something that we think is common, something that we think that is lower. And um, we're not beyond, you know, um, totally disrespecting the immigrants to our land, as well as we're, we totally disrespect the sparrow, who we think is an invasive species. So those, those things sort of melded together and became what we call the English Sparrow Wars. Um, and this, and the people who wanted to kill the sparrows really won the fight. So, and ever since then, um, the sparrow is thought of as a a second class citizen, or or worse, much worse. It's irresponsible. It's terrible. It's it's just interesting to me. I, it's I, late. Yeah, it's just been laden with these uh, human qualities of the observer. Exactly. Yeah. And and the fact is is that in, in fact in all these and attempts to um, rid people of the sparrow also has had counterproductive um, effects on the environment. Yeah, it has. Mao had a campaign, the four pest campaign, to rid to rid the nation of sparrows because they thought this was the tree sparrow instead of the house sparrow, but they're similar in the way they proliferate. And Mao thought that eliminating the sparrow, he had everyone, you know the grandmas, kids, trapping, killing sparrows with the idea that sparrows were stealing the produce from farms or the seed. And But by killing them all, all these insects proliferated then that actually killed the crops. So it's like you, it's hard to mess around with nature. It's almost inevitable that you end up screwing something up. But in that case, yeah, they say that that might have led to the great famines in China. Um, and, and I wanted to say that it was interesting in places where the sparrow is actually disappearing now in India and in England, um, people are just beginning to love it again. Um, and, and it's sort of beautiful to me that they're setting out, instead of trying to kill the sparrow, they're setting out special dishes for the sparrow to enter. And we've learned to build uh, bird houses where sparrows can't get in. That's a big thing birders do. Keep the sparrows out. And now in these places with the sparrows disappearing, people are building the bird houses that will be especially right for the sparrow. And I just thought this was sort of a beautiful example of grace. But then it also made me wonder about us. Like, do we just love what is rare and and disregard and hate what is common? And I, I think that's sort of an important theological question. It seems to me that um, in reading about God and and Christ in the text, that's not the case. God doesn't just love what is rare. God loves what's ubiquitous, what is common, everything, all of us, no matter if we shine and sparkle, that's not the thing that makes God love. 
And I thought that was a wonderful message that you brought out in a number of uh, uh, different ways of looking at some of the birds in your book, Consider the Birds, um, the pigeon, or also known as the dove, if you want to be more spiritual, I guess. Uh, the other, uh, other books, the vulture, the eagle, um, the ostrich, the quail, All mentioned in your book, Consider the Birds. And, of course, that phrase, consider the birds, uh, comes from the lips of Jesus. Uh, consider the birds. What, what does that mean to you? Well, I really, I guess I took that very seriously. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, well, especially, I guess, in the story of the raven, this is where this comes out, because um, <laughs> Noah, you know, the raven has this reputation. Noah sent out the, the dove from the art but before he sent out the dove he released the raven and commentators have often come to the conclusion that the raven must have failed in its mission like it got distracted they say it got distracted eating the corpses of the people that died in the flood and um so philo called it the symbol of satan and augustine said that it personified impure men and procrastinators and in the book of proverbs you do see meet ravens plucking out the eyes of disobedient children. So it has this really terrible reputation. But then it's also the raven that flies in to feed Elijah when he's stranded in the desert. And and in Luke, Jesus asks us to consider the raven. In the other gospels, Jesus says, consider the birds of the air. Um, but he says that considering the raven might free us from anxiety. And I just thought that that really took on more meaning when you examine the raven, raven throughout the text. The raven fails, it, it blunders, it's, it's noble at times, but it's voracious, and occasionally it succeeds in feeding the hungry, and that's much like us. And Jesus says, consider it, in the context of him saying, don't be anxious. It's like God feeds this carrion, eating procrastinator, and so surely God will feed you. And somehow that makes it seem like innocence isn't a prerequisite. The birds aren't just these beautiful things flitting through the air. They're complicated, and God loves them. And if we consider that, perhaps perhaps we could be free of anxiety. Maybe we don't even need medication. Maybe considering the birds would help us be less anxious. Debbie Blue, my guest on Religion for Life, her book is Consider the Birds, a provocative guide to birds of the Bible. Uh, last year, Debbie, um, um, uh, we lost our son uh, at, at the age of 25, and but my wife and I have been, uh, this past uh, year and a half, have been grieving a great deal, obviously, and we have outside our window, my wife's put up the bird feeders, and, and that's been kind of a, a, a source, she's probably more spiritual than I, um, thinking might might be a way of communicating to us these birds from, from our son, but uh, they do have a sense of comfort in terms of, of grief. Did you ever, do you find a connection between considering the birds and grief yeah definitely I mean, i'm so sorry to hear about hear about that that is so difficult well i, I didn't mean to necessarily go there put put you on the spot like that but i just was thinking of considering the birds and how that really does have a spiritual connection uh with with loss and meaning yeah and so many times i think and i actually love this people 
people see the birds as, like I said, messengers of the gods, or often it's the souls of people who have died. That has been around for a very long time. And, um, I, you know, I love the symbolism of that. There's something about that that does seem very comforting to me. And um, without considering science, it's, this has been happening for centuries. I love that, you know. Yeah, they, uh, the idea of watching the birds has been an, an, an insight and an inroad into spirituality, hasn't it? Absolutely, yes. Did you find uh, any birds uh, that you, in the Bible that you didn't get to discuss? Um, well, yeah. It was sort of hard to decide on the ones that I was going to discuss. One, one thing that really interested me was these sort of mythological birds that don't really exist um but they're in they're in the midrash and um but i picked ones that i thought you know people might recognize more and that had stories that were either really significant in the text or or birds that were very um prominent in the christian consciousness for instance the pigeon or actually the dove which anyone familiar with christianity knows about the dove which is really a pigeon. Yes. <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit as pigeon, I mean, I, I think that's marvelous. Yeah, I love that so much because it's sort of in the popular imagination, the Holy Spirit dove is this pure white thing. But to think of it as a pigeon, you know, this gray bird with the iridescent green neck and the violet, we, it's like the pigeon that appears in our parks and our cities and it's ubiquitous and it leaves its droppings all uh -huh. over. And I thought, this is a good way to think of the spirit, not this holy, white, pure thing that's above us, but something that is so among us that we don't even notice it sometimes. And maybe that not noticing it sometimes um, is what makes us more destructive or unkind because we don't realize how much the spirit of God is among us. So I love thinking of the Spirit of God as a pigeon instead of a pure white dove. In your book, you talk about your living arrangement. Uh, is it semi-communal? Yeah, it is. We sort of jokingly refer to it as a hippie commune, but that's not really what it is. We bought property with four other families who are our good friends, and we, we all live in our own spaces, but we share the property. Um, we live in a straw bale house, which everyone helped us build, and we do a lot of gardening. We have a great path down by the river. Um, it's not a really intense, um, intentional community, but we're good friends and good neighbors. Debbie Blue, tell me about your church, uh, House of Mercy in St. Paul. Well, we found... We founded our church in the spring of 1996, so a long time ago, um, on, on Soren Kierkegaard's birthday, <laughs> which mm. we've always kind of liked. Um, we say that it's a discriminating blend of high church and low church, of innovation and tradition, sincere worship, and healthy skepticism. Um, we actually started out as an American Baptist church, but we're... Um, now affiliated with the ELCA, and we sort of like the tension. We're a church that likes tension. Um, we are 
sort of anti-institutional and yet we sort of want to be connected to an institution because that's what it is to be human. And we ask a lot of questions. Uh, we don't think that ambiguity is the enemy of faith, but it's partner. Uh, music and art is really essential to what we do. We have this great sort of alt-country band. It, it plays out in bars and we have a record label that um, is committed to making records of local musicians. Um, we have wonderful artists. Every year we do a Stations of the Cross service where we have 14 different artists interpret the Stations of the Cross. Last year we did street art, which was really pretty interesting. People did street art throughout the city and then photographed that. And it was just really great stuff. But we are a church. There's some ways we seem very traditional, but I, but I think the content is is different it's we te we approach the text in a sort of midrashic way um there's a lot of life there well and if it's anything like your book uh consider the birds which i thought a, a, a marvelous integration of of science of environmental concern of current issues of real serious biblical study and um, of using the symbol and the mythology, just really all mixed together uh, to, to just to draw out life. I, uh, I, I highly recommend uh, your book. And if, and if the book talks about your church, then I highly recommend your church too. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. I really love it a lot. It's also a place where people that aren't, um, aren't real church people. Oh, I think you said this in the beginning. They don't feel weird coming to it, so that's cool. But then we also have a lot of people that do have connection to the church, but maybe they found they, somewhere along the line they left it and they're coming back. But it's a great mix, a great mix of people. We just have about a minute or so left um, for a final question. Um, what do you hope that people will take away from your book, Consider the Birds? Well... I hope they will take away um, this sort of idea that maybe Christianity has been a little bit too anthropocentric and maybe the whole world, the whole planet would benefit if we began to consider the birds, if we took that seriously. I also hope they will, um, they, they, that it might change some of their ideas about, about God, what holy means, what, um, Maybe the vulnerability of God is like versus the power of God. Um, I hope they'll pay attention to birds and just be more attentive in general and concerned with the life of the planet because I think this is a very pressing concern, obviously. Debbie Blue, my guest on Religion for Life, author of a very wonderful book called Consider the Birds, a Provocative Guide to Birds of the Bible. Debbie, thank you for the book, and thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you so much for the conversation, John. It was wonderful. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. Minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, at religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC. Emory, Virginia.
Be well.